Hello, everyone. So this is the really third episode in a week because we had a special bonus episode for Mother's Day. Really, I did. I don't know why I always say we. I just like feeling like I'm part of something bigger than I am when it's just me doing the podcast. But that was that was really a cool one. I just I've listened to it a couple of times um, just through editing mostly, and it it's been nice to just know my friends and know my sister a little bit better and come to a new appreciation of them. And also it's been great to hear some feedback and I think some new listeners checked out the pod. So if you're coming back after that, really appreciate it. This is a bit of a different episode. So I have Tom Beeler, who is someone I was on his podcast and it's a comedian in the States. And one of those people, I just hope when things get back to normal ish and I am back in the States and in his part of the, the country that I get to meet him someday because he was a lot of fun to talk to. We had a really good time. We recorded the app on, or the app, the podcast on Clubhouse, the app Clubhouse, and that's been a little bit of a, an experiment that I've been doing lately, but I'm just glad that we have the podcast in a normal form to share with you. You can definitely check out online. Tom's going to be doing a show with his comedy troupe that he has or his club district comedy. And he's one of those people who took advantage of the time during the lockdown and set up his own thing with some friends, which is really cool. And one thing we talk about a lot is accessibility. And that's something that's really come up as a result of the lockdown lockdowns and the pandemic, people who couldn't get to clubs easily and couldn't go upstairs and things like that were able to perform online and not have access issues. I mean, there's the obvious issue of maybe internet access, but like physical access to spaces is something that really doesn't get talked about a lot outside of the community of people who are fighting for access. It reminded me just in listening back to this conversation with Tom about the documentary Crip Camp it's on Netflix. It was really, really excellent. A bit of a hard watch here and there because you're seeing people really going through a lot, but also just showing this resilience that's so beautifully unique to us as as people. And it's how the people got the Americans with Disabilities Act passed, and it was really inspirational. But we've come pretty far. I'm in London. I mean, I see that there are accessibility issues here for sure. I've lived in New York. It's very visible in Crip Camp. But I just think that people like Tom and others who are planning to keep going with their online shows, it's really just an awesome thing. He has a show called Fancy Mike. or fan- Well, it's really Fancy Mike. It's not like a guy named Mike who's fancy. It's the Fancy Mike, like the fancy microphone, um, on June 25th. So if you're listening to this and you want to grab a ticket for that, that would be great. This is the show where they earn money or you can even just donate to them, but that's um, district-comedy.com and I just wanted to plug that for Tom because I really like what he's doing there. And I guess that's about it for this week before the podcast, so short intro. Film recommendation, comedy recommendation. Um, I guess the last thing is, this will be old news if someone listens to this a year from now, but I'm doing a solo show at Brighton Fringe and Camden Fringe. And if you want to see my comedy, if you're curious about what that's like, you can follow me on at Robbia Comedy on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And I'm going to be doing some 
online previews for that coming up really soon. So check that out. But I guess that's all the plugs I need to do. This was a show where we're kind of plugging things. So I thought I'd start the trend now. So it wasn't just Tom who had to carry the load on that. Uh, I really hope you enjoy this episode and have some laughs and enjoy just listening to an artist. And he's also a librarian. So I find out some things about libraries that I never knew, but I thought were really interesting. Thanks for being here. Welcome to More Than Work, the podcast reminding you that your self-worth is defined by more than your job title. I'm Rabia, an IT project manager, comedian, nonprofit volunteer, and sometimes activist. Every week, I'll chat with a guest about pursuing passions outside of work or creating meaningful opportunities inside the workplace. As you listen, I hope you'll be inspired to do the same. Here we go. Welcome back this week, everyone. We have Tom Beeler here today. He is the founder and artistic director of District Comedy, and he's a librarian. I actually met him during comedy because I haven't read in about two years. So anyway, Tom, <laughs> how's, <laughs> Tom how's it going? It's, it's going pretty well. I got to say I was in a similar boat until like very recently as far as the reading. It's, it's been a minute. I need a good book. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I kind of, I said what you do, but do you want to just... Uh, introduce yourself a little bit yeah so like rabia said i'm a librarian and i'm the founder of district comedy which is basically one of the many virtual comedy clubs that was started during the pandemic but before that i was also a professional actor for nine plus years including on a short form improv troupe which lasted eight years and yeah i'm really excited to talk about all all the things, the librarian stuff, the entertainment industry stuff, and surprisingly, I've noticed, like, a bit of intersections and overlap that they kind of have. First of all, where are you right now? I'm in Alexandria, Virginia. Yeah. In the United States. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. So that's, we got 75% of the listeners are in the U.S. right now, so far anyway. So, yeah, so let's just start with, I guess, maybe the librarian side of you if that makes sense and then yeah. go to the acting absolutely and the comedy cool so how did you end up a librarian basically so i <laughs> i'm gonna already get you mad at me so i got into librarianship through the acting believe it or not <laughs> so kind of uh flipping it around but basically i went to undergrad for theater mainly because i was able to get a scholarship on it so i was like uh, i don't know it's like a free degree in something i feel like so many jobs it's just like we need you to have the piece of paper and then yeah. get over it and then yeah so i did that and then i did a lot of freelance work acting and then as a teaching artist for some time and then the teaching artist stuff got me into substitute teaching and then i did a long-term substitute assignment as a school librarian or as they call them now a media specialist and then from there i was hired as library assistant then I was a library assistant for a public library in Loudoun County, then Arlington County, then a library associate. And weirdly enough, we'll, we'll probably get into this later, I've worked in, in a few libraries, but like weirdly enough, a lot of my experience is in maker spaces, which is like kind of a new thing for libraries in general. Not a lot of people are like too familiar with that concept, I feel. I'm not. So let's go, let's go to that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> 
this is going to be like such an easy podcast for you because I have like so many things to talk about. <laughs> I overshare. It's going to be great. But yeah, so maker spaces are basically so libraries for the public in general have uh, similar mission statements because we all go by the guidelines and the directives kind of approved by the American Library Association. So because of that, a lot of libraries include in their mission kind of lifelong learning and this contributes to how we execute our programming and we kind of tailor our programming depending on the library you are working in to the community that surrounds it so basically i've worked in a few libraries where the community has been like we're really interested in technology we're really interested in like crafting and making things so because of that the libraries have been able to secure funding as kind of a uh way to support their mission for this lifelong learning to creating these spaces in the library that are, you know, free to use by the public, minus the cost of materials, but all the equipment is free. And it's like, it's really cool spaces. It's like you go to a library and you think there's just going to be books. And then it's like, we also have a makerspace and it's like a separate room with like sewing machines and 3D printers. And my last one had a laser cutter and like all kinds of cool stuff like that. So, <laughs> Even though I, I am a librarian and I do work with books sometimes, and I actually work with data a lot, I, I have also worked a lot with, like, STL files and, like, OBJs. Just, like, the a lot of, like, weird coding stuff you wouldn't associate with mm-hmm. books. Well, that that's pretty cool. I mean, that's good because they... Like, when I think about going to the library as a kid, I remember we used to go for, like, reading time or something when we were little... And that was neat because it was something that was free, so yeah. it's accessible to anyone, and you were also learning. And I know, like, I talked to someone recently who their library is being used as a meeting space for different things, but have you done anything with, like, improv or acting or anything? Like, done any workshops, or it's really more of a... Yeah, I've, I've tried. I have definitely tried, and... Some of my efforts have been more successful than others. One of the things that I do outside of the library stuff is I work for a theater company, and until I changed jobs recently, my library was very close to the theater company that I worked for, so we actually had a few opportunities there for, like, outreach and, like, being able to, like, have the touring company of the theater come in and do shows for the kids and kind of even get them to like, gear shows and devise stuff specifically towards topics we were trying to address. I mean, it's just like with anything, like, for February, we're going to do book displays on Black History Month, and then, like, if we can have a play to go alongside it to kind of, like, keep the initiative going, that's, like, so much better. But performance and the libraries is kind of a tricky situation. And I feel like especially so with comedy... Mm. Because there's the side of the library, which is, like, its branding, where we are the library, we are knowledge, we are a place that is for everybody, which is in- inclusive to families. Families coming in and using the library like the story times you were describing. But on the other hand, it's also a very foundational principle of libraries to also not censor people. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that is 
that conflict of interests a little bit is why you don't see as many like performance-oriented programs unless they're kids shows or stand-up comedy programs at the library unless they're geared specifically towards adults and they kind of give a heads up like this thing isn't for kids beforehand <laughs> could you imagine going into the library and being like oh my god there's an open mic going on and somebody is like getting themselves canceled like <laughs> i just wanted some dr seuss books which has its own irony now but <laughs> yeah yeah it's like i guess you can do like burning books what is the deal and then kind of like <laughs> what's the deal with burning books i i okay separate subject and this is probably for a different show i do like have a dream of like having a tight like 30 minutes of library specific material that i want to take <laughs> to like an ala conference at some point and everyone knows now that ala is the american library association so I'm that's like, correct like, they know they're back. in the know <laughs> To me, like what I envision is a typical library and you are not. And mm. that's a compliment. But like I just remember being scared of the librarian when I was a kid because I was always like late with my books because I would blame my mom probably and be like, oh, she didn't bring me. But she is the one who drives. <laughs> at that point, yes, that's true. <laughs> but like I remember I was bringing my nephews and niece <laughs> to the library and like our mother, my sister, also didn't return the books on time. And so then we go, and the kids are going to check out books. And it was a big deal because it's like I was trying to do something, you know, like, come on, guys, let's go get books. And the three of us, well, the four of us go up to the, the lady to check out our books. And she just goes, you owe 32 cents. And she's so mad. And I was like, all right. And I look at the kids, and I just like wanted to start laughing. But I don't want to get in trouble for teaching them right. to not respect people. And so I just go, okay. And, you know, I just kind of handled it. And then we found out I didn't have a library card. It was like this whole thing. It was like one thing on top of the other. Mm-hmm. And I just was thinking, man, why, what's up with this? You know, why is a librarian, like this lady, it's possible this lady was mad at me when I was five. And 35 years later, she was mad at me again. It's possible, <laughs> right? First of all, do you think that, like, probably that rolls hard in the sense that you're dealing with the public, Mm-hmm. But, like, what do you like about doing the librarian work? And then is there is there any customers like me that just drive you nuts? Well, I'll actually speak to that specific scenario first because it's actually been, like, a big thing in libraries re- recently, at least in this area, is that there is this trend now going, which my current system just joined, which is we've actually eliminated overdue fines. Whoa, really? Yeah, so, which is really interesting that that was, like, the reaction compared to the reaction that we're getting now, which is, like, we have a lot of people, don't get me wrong, that are, like, very supportive, and they're like, yeah, it's awesome that the libraries are getting rid of overdue fines. But believe it or not, we have people that are mad about it, and they're like, why are you getting rid of overdue fines? Like, how are we supposed to teach our kids responsibility if there's no overdue fines for books? And I'm like, okay... Like, I wouldn't say this to a patron, but, like, part of me is, like, thinking, I don't know, parent? That yeah. that would be one way. It's just uh, parent your kids yourself and not rely on the library to teach them responsibility. Um, <laughs> like, this generation won't learn the responsible library policies of the previous generations. We're in trouble, right? Like, Yeah. Well, like, and, and but it kind of goes back to what you were saying, where it's, like, there is a big discrepancy now between, like, 
the people who are actually working as librarians and the idea that we have of librarians imagined in our heads based on truth but like there's a lot of articles written for example about the main two stereotypes of librarians are like the dichotomy of like either the sexy librarian a la the snl sketch with what's her name <laughs> who was the the clown lady from batman i can't remember the character's name or her name right mm-hmm. now which is crazy because i love them both harlequin and the actress who played her anyway she did an snl sketch where she was oh, like margot robbie sexy or margot robbie yeah, yeah thank yeah. you but so there's that, and then there's also, like, the old crone alternative, where it's, like, the tight bun, the very, like, stern demeanor. Those are, like, the only two versions of librarians that I feel like people know right now. And the fines-free policy totally goes against, like, both of those. I guess not so much the sexy librarian. Maybe they're cool with not having fines. But basically, like, I find that a lot of the people in the library field now are, like, they're around my age. They're the ones who influenced me to dye my hair. They're, like, a bunch of tattoos, a bunch of, like, millennials, and a lot of, like, progressive thinking, which I think is uh, hmm. definitely going to be good for us in the long run. What do you like about working in the library? I can think of things I would like, similar, like, I've always wanted to work in a bookstore, which is, you know, something I could do, but I work in yeah. IT instead. But, like, what do you like about it? Because you've stayed in it while you're doing all these creative endeavors. So, so one part of it is, and I uh, feel like you've probably had people on your podcast before where they kind of have a day job in combination with the thing that they do creatively. Mm-hmm. And I think that is definitely, for the most part, it hasn't been lately, but like everybody's been extra stressed because the pandemic. But like in general, I feel like the type of work involved with the library for the most part allows me to keep kind of a work-life balance but also it is kind of tapping in two different sides of the same coin which the coin is my personality Mm -hmm. as far as the like left brain logical data oriented side gets a lot out of doing librarian stuff especially my current position has a lot to do with collections which is like evaluating materials based on statistics of usage and like generating reports and that kind of thing versus the other side of myself which is artistic and at the end of the day really both of the acting comedy and librarian fields have in common that is a draw for me is that it's all about storytelling at the end Mm -hmm. of the day and it's about what the story is, whose voices we're elevating, and kind of not just the content of the story, but how we're trying to kind of, like, relay that to the rest of society, I guess. I feel like when I talk, I always think of it and I judge it as if it's like an English paper and I'm like my English teacher would not like me using the word society right now but like it it is it's like how we kind of like relay our stories to the rest of the world and Mm -hmm. and that I think is not only something that's very fulfilling for me creatively and from a data oriented side but it's also something that's very important I agree I mean this whole podcast is just to help others through others people's stories basically just get people's stories out there so hopefully people will relate to them and will be you know changing their own narrative of what they're doing in in their future and stuff or 
or saying, oh, yeah, what I'm doing is great, and I'm going to keep doing that. But either way, you know. So I think that that is cool, though, because having a job that isn't taking all your all your energy away from you is good. You can be in a job where all your energy is gone and you don't have anything to put into your creativity, and it doesn't mean you don't want the creativity. It's just... Yeah. <laughs> and I've definitely been, like, having to strike a new balance recently because, again, it's like I was thrown into a great whirlwind in 2020 as far mm-hmm. as, like, I got engaged, I graduated from library school, I then immediately got this new job, which is my first position as an official librarian, and just kind of like acclimating to adjusting to a new organization as well as adjusting to the pandemic. So I feel like even though I'm preaching like, library's great for work-life balance, I haven't been actually feeling that (laughs) recently, but like nobody has been. Um... But I do feel like, in general, just the fact that there's an element of my job that corresponds to my beliefs in relation to the creative stuff I pursue, it uh, kind of even gives me an advantage professionally to be Mm -hmm. able to think of things from that perspective. Especially because with the improv and the acting and stuff, of course, I've like gone through a little bit of the writing process too with stand-up and I've written three plays I've done a sketch review and I feel like that is also something that lends itself well to the library field because one of my duties and I made a post about this recently that people are like uh, giving me a little bit of grief for just because I sound Mm. very much like I'm complaining about something that isn't a problem but one of the great things about my job is that in my free time as like I guess a resume booster and like a professional development sort of element I can get approved to review books that haven't been published yet and i used to do really boring stuff because i worked in a makerspace and it was like review this woodworking manual (laughs) and i was like okay i will but like i'm not gonna be happy about it and i just recently got switched to like sci-fi and graphic novels which is like that for me is like the peak that is the epitome of like kind of what you want and the background of having been a sort of author myself I feel is an advantage when then going to review other people's work to have the perspective of I get what you're trying to do I'm also trying to make stuff and here's here's some suggestions I think will help kind of thing (laughs) here for your second edition maybe although I don't actually give notes very often it's normally just like the library being like are we gonna buy this or not (laughs) kind of oh interesting I never have thought about how a library gets a book It's a can of worms. So basically, the recent thing was that Random House just became Penguin House, because they acquired Penguin Publishing. For a very, very long time, there have been like four big publishing companies in general, and now there's three. Simon & Schuster being the other one, or...? Simon & Schuster and HarperCollins, and then like for academic stuff, I believe the one that we go to is Macmillan. Macmillan, And then for databases, it's EBSCO. And it's, it's really complicated because it's also one of those areas where private sector and public sector intersect, where we have to negotiate these contracts with private sector companies, And, like, that's one of the reasons, like, if you ask any librarian, we are not fans at all of Amazon and Audible. And part of the reason for that is because they will not sell to libraries. So if you're ever asking a library, why don't you have this book? They have it on Amazon. It's because they literally won't sell it to us. 
and even with other publishers in general, we've been trying to negotiate different like forms of contract structures to do it. But like basically, for a very long time, it was like if you wanted to get a ebook, for mm-hmm. example, it when a library buys it, going into that, the publishing company charges us like seven to ten times as much as it costs for a single person to buy it themselves. Mm. Because they know that it's going to get a lot of use, it's going to get a lot of people, and they're going to lose a lot of sales um, because people are going to be checking it out from the library instead of buying it themselves. And then the newer thing is, and I think is better in the long run, but like I think it's HarperCollins, but don't quote me on that. But they're the ones where now we're kind of looking at our contracts and negotiating it from a, we're going to lease the book for two years. Hmm. Or we're going to lease the book for 22 checkouts. And then once it hits 22 checkouts, then we'll decide whether or not to renew it. Especially for the stuff that comes out in its new releases. It'll be hot on the shelf and have a bunch of holds and a bunch of checkouts for the first six months. And then once the hype has gone down, it kind of just sits on the shelf and starts beginning its process towards weeding. And that's basically, again, I feel like a lot of people who work in collections for libraries are like me, where they're very data-driven. There's also so many materials that we have to keep track of that it's just like, I'm generating a report and everything that hasn't circulated in the last three years, because we're going by three years, because every, every library, I feel like, is just going like, 2020 didn't count Nobody was allowed in libraries for a lot of that time, so that's probably why stuff didn't check out. So we're extending everything by an additional year, but it's like, everything that didn't circulate within the last three years, we have to review and be like, is this worth holding on to? So you founded District Comedy in 2020. Mm-hmm. Had you done, actually, stand-up before then? Was Because I know you've done acting, you've done improv, mm-hmm. silent improv, which we won't talk yeah. about. Just because it's... Silent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but we can't talk about it. But like, what kind of, I guess, let's just talk through any part that you want that leads you up to then doing district comedy and, and your experience there. Sure. Yeah. So basically, my first performance experience was technically I was like seven and I was raised in a Southern Baptist church and we were doing our own production of the Good News Christmas Cruise, which is a good time celebration Etsy. And that was like my first musical technically. And then it was traumatizing and then I never performed again until I was like 15. I did some community theater stuff, started doing like stuff at the high school theater department and basically I started doing when I was 15 improv with my high school improv club basically my family has this idea where like you kind of identify your strengths and your weaknesses and then you focus the majority of your time trying to improve upon your weaknesses so that Hmm. then by the end of it like you're an overall well-rounded individual so i was very shy and very introverted and poor with social skills then like because of our family theory and stuff i 
pushed myself to kind of like do improv after I'd kind of discovered it at my high school. My mom was also uh, a high school teacher at the same high school that I went mm. to. So I was like also roaming the hallways a lot after hours. So I kind of stumbled on this club accidentally and I was like, oh, okay, I can I can hang out with these people. But yeah, from there, it's just kind of like you get the acting bug, I guess, for me, the improv bug. And I started uh, doing improv at, while also doing like high school and college theater, I did the college improv troupe at my local community college, which was funny because I never actually went there. But like as a high schooler, I was like, I'm just too advanced for these other people. I need other people who will challenge my hilarious <laughs> skills. And that's actually where I met Roz, who is one of my co-hosts. And that is why, like, I, it is true when I say we have been performing together improv comedy for over a decade now. And then from there, I started with, like, film acting work when I was 19. So, like, still mid-college. I was also, like, getting a degree in theater at the time, as I mentioned. And then, in tandem with that... I had done a community play, and then the actors in the community play ended up making this company, which is the one that lasted for eight years, which was Free Range Improv. That was, like, the professional improv company. Which, like, no shame to the company, but I use the term, like, professional very loosely, just because <laughs> it's, like, don't think that we were doing, like, gigantic theaters all the time. We would every once in a while for corporate events. One time we performed, actually, at the Bowie Bay Sox Stadium, which is, like, crazy to think about, but it was, like, we were at the stadium technically. It was empty also. So not the glamorous thing you would think it to be. But, like, for the most part, it is, like, a very regimented thing because a lot of our venues would be bars and then a lot of our patrons would be like drunk patrons and then they would undoubtedly suggest a lot of the same things when we got suggestions from the audience it's like we're drunk and sexually repressed a, a penis that, that's your scene suggestion and so yeah i did that with Roz and Brooks and Lisa for eight years. They're my two other co-hosts. And then, so that ended in December of 2019 before mm -hmm. everything hit with the pandemic. And then, so basically from now and five years prior is when I started working with the theater company in Northern Virginia, which is like the physical theater. They're not the first professional theater that I've worked with, but they're the one that I have the majority of my professional acting experience with because they work under a company membership model. So once I did my first couple shows with them and became an official company member, then it's like they cast from within that pool and then you do more of their shows and you get to know the people more. And it's really nice. You kind of become a family and it adds a little bit of uh, stability in a otherwise a freelance market of being an actor. So that's the creative side of it. My claim to fame though is I did a, if you check out season one episode three of Evil Twins on investigation discovery crime reenactment dramas, I played both Greg and Jeff as younger as younger folks before they become serial killers but you can still kind of tell there's like some iffy stuff going on there's like a good 10 minutes following that story arc and one of the scenes was so awkward watching because they cut it so that it looks like i'm beating myself up <laughs> and it's just like especially for where i was in my life which was like still like awkward and coming out in college i was like oh this is a metaphor oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's like the ultimate soap opera dream is to play a twin. This is like 
Adam and Stuart on All My Children or whatever. Those were my favorite. That was my favorite. David Canary, who I, yeah, he actually passed away quite a while ago, but I remember watching All My Children with my grandma, and it was Adam and Stuart, and those, and then, you know, I guess later on, like, Family Matters, you have, like, not on a sitcom, you have, like, Stefan Urkel and Steve Urkel, <laughs> and so you're, yeah. like, these twins. I mean, I think that's a great, I don't know, that those roles, that's so great just to play twins. I, I yeah, love it. It, it's fun. Also, like, it's it's kind of like, I don't know, again, the theme of today's episode is tangents. But, like, that was a really interesting experience for me for the fact that that was also kind of my introduction to, because it was before the theater company, but it was my introduction to acting without words mm. because it was one of those shows where it's kind of edited so that they have the speakers and the experts and the people who wrote the book on homicidal twins narrating throughout the episode like also what a career choice i'm the author on homicidal twins can you imagine like mom i'm writing a book on what homicidal twins it's like what i'm uh, sorry you're still getting along with your brother <laughs> time the book for you to review it's on homicidal twins I hope that's oh all right. my god <laughs> let me give you the inside take but like yeah basically so the show gets narrated over by the experts mm. And then, like, they have, like, a special narrator for, like, doing the transitions and stuff when they're not talking about the book. But, yeah, that was, like, my silent acting, like, premiere because then you don't want the people who are actually being televised and their bodies visually on display to talk because then they're uh, SAG-eligible and you have to pay them more. Oh. Which I ended up being SAG-eligible anyway, but I wasn't at this time, which definitely saved the production company a lot of money. That's interesting, yeah, because that's like Unsolved Mysteries, right, kind of thing where mm-hmm. that show where they would just, like, talk and then you'd just see the reenactment. Ah, that's... But did that... As far as, like, just solidifying in you, or did it do anything to affect how you felt about acting, I guess, at that point? Or either way? like Yeah, it did. But, like, in a very shallow, superficial way that it affects most people in the (laughs) entertainment industry, it's like... Even though it wasn't exercising... It wasn't challenging to me on an artistic level. Mm. It became one of those things where it's like, even though it's nothing of note, even though it's not like I had an especially contributing role in it, it's also like, the entertainment industry is in such a state where I think the last study I saw was that it's like, 92% of actors are considered unemployed. So, getting this show for me, and we did like a cute little very informal but still kind of flattering screening between me and my friends when the episode aired and uh, it's just kind of indicative of that culture which i actually don't support now which is you're only valid as an artist or as an actor if there's something that we can see you in on tv so this was Mm -hmm. like an ego boost because it was like something you can see me in on tv and i would have people facebook message me every time the episode aired and be like oh my god i saw you on tv and that's cool but at the same time it also not like hurts me at all because like people have their own preferences for the type of content that they want to see but for me that is not, like, an artistic piece I am especially proud of. It's very easy for me to pretend like I'm hitting my body double and then lay on the floor making a sad face. There's not, like, a <laughs> ton of emotional depth that goes into those cutscenes. Right. So, 
Yeah, is like ego boost very shallow though. Hmm. <laughs> very shallow. Versus like the stuff I've done with the theater company has been much more artistically rewarding. Uh, which you probably wouldn't gather that from my stand up whenever I talk about them because I have this bit. We're a physical theater company, so a lot of times there is. Uh, a scene where you gotta go on stage for 10 minutes while the main actors are doing stuff and you are a chair that they are sitting on because we either couldn't afford props or it's artistic choice. Like, we'll let the audience decide that. But the other stuff I've done with them, like our adaptations of Peter Pan, which we also do shows sometimes where we speak. And I actually, I feel like, get put in those shows more often because I'm not, like, a trained dancer or anything, and they tend to lean mm. those towards those people. But, like, for the shows where there's talking, and especially children's shows and comedies, they would put me in. And, like, we do, like, we do... And I guess I should... I've talked about them enough. Plug is for Synetic Theater in Arlington, Virginia, Northern Virginia. But, yeah, we're kind of known for doing darker, heavier, more emotionally investigative adaptations of like the Grimm's fairy tales so our Peter Pan was very much like a work where we're diving into really the literal like Peter Pan complex of Peter Pan and digging into backstory and making up our own backstory and adding those scenes is like that kind of work is very fulfilling to me. We also did an adaptation of The Trial by Franz Kafka. Oh. And that was great because I actually got to do that show. My fiancé is also an actor, so we got to do that together. We did the play on that show where we alluded also to Kafka's metamorphosis, except everybody else was a bug and he was the only human, which made sense because basically the entire government is like one unity of insects, and he is the one person who's just trying to get through it normally. He doesn't even know what he's arrested for. This may sound out of context for people listening who haven't read that book, but check out The Trial by Franz Kafka. So that was cute because me and my fiancé, to be cop roaches, buddy cop roaches, but yeah, that, that interesting more thought-provoking work is what's more rewarding to me now. I think because I'm older and I am at a more, like, mature portion of my artistic development, and also I think partly because with that, that's probably partly contributed to the fact that I have been able to also, while doing the acting, make a career for myself as a library professional. Because having the day job to rely on, one of the huge benefits of that for me was that I started enjoying my art again. Because there was a period in my life where, and again, it was like that shallow point of pride for me where it's like, I'm going to make it as a performer. That's going to be the only way that I make money. And, like, it's a, it's a statement of pride. It's basically saying, like, I am not willing to do other work. And at least the way that I had it framed for myself at the time. And then once I kind of, like, humbled myself and gave other areas of interest a try as far as, like, a professional career, and then the stability that comes with that. It gave me so much freedom to be able to, like, pick and choose the gigs that I wanted to do. Like, there were so many jobs that I did 
even though they, like, killed me inside. Like, I'm gonna spend 17 hours on set as an extra to not even actually go on camera for the paycheck. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have my day job, I'm gonna get my bills paid, mm -hmm. and then with the free time that I have that my job allows me, I can pick and choose meaningful projects because I'm not relying on it. I also felt that, like, even when the gig or the project was something that was artistically fulfilling... A lot of times I wouldn't get to enjoy it because it's like I have to constantly be thinking about where the next job is coming from. Mm -hmm. I can, I mean, I definitely understand that. And I mean, I got into comedy while I've already been, you know, halfway, hopefully halfway through my career. I don't want really, really want to think that I'm not halfway through my <laughs> career, but it's probably I'm not. And there's a different thing about it being something you can do because you love it, but you don't need it for your paycheck, I guess. There, yeah. There's like a place of I don't know privilege or something that that has because then you know I can go like buy a drink at a show and it's not that big a deal and whereas like some people it's you know they're just going and trying to make it just at doing that which I respect because I didn't have the whatever it takes to do that when I was twenty but I know what you mean like then it's like more comfortable because and if, if something doesn't go well it's not like the end of the world and you're worried that now I'm never going to get paid again for this. Yeah. And know? I guess like it really is kind of a place of privilege. Cause like I've heard similar experiences like Lisa, who is my co-host for two funny feedback was on the improv troupe with me. She also comes from an acting background, much more professional than me. But a lot of the stories from her earlier days was about how she was busting ass between gigs at like a waitressing job so it's kind of a place of privilege for me that i have found this other thing that i'm good at and this other skill that even though like i don't think it's necessarily more important or less important than say something more service oriented like waiting tables it is kind of structured in like the professional mm -hmm. I don't know what the word is but like industry, academia in such a way that it's like at least it has like consistent hours and like mm -hmm. having a job with consistent hours by itself let alone like with health benefits or other things that you know I may take uh, for granted now although I also look at other countries where it's like universal healthcare. Oh my gosh, it's I like, know. we all could have had that. That's definitely where an element of privilege comes in and kind of advocates more so for, like, we need universal healthcare and the amount of stress that that would relieve from people who are already struggling so much. I just feel like, thinking of the artists specifically... Mm -hmm. Once that stress was gone for me, it was able to open a lot of creative outlets and creative avenues. And especially with art, it is like a specific conversation because the element of art in any medium has so much to do with play that like, how are you supposed to do that if you're thinking about like your health insurance yeah, or like where your next paycheck's going to come from or making rent and like all that other stuff with it. Yeah, that, no, that's exactly, that's very true, too, because there's such a burden on that kind of thing and and wondering and not knowing where things are going to come from. So, regarding district comedy, what made you guys start that up? 
so this is really f it's kind of funny so yesterday was april fool's day and so i kind of last second was like we're gonna turn our normal thursday open mic into a fool's day festival and it it didn't get a huge ton of traction but it was really interesting because one of the additional time slots led a comedian to me who in the chat was again another shout out but who's hey did you have aaron tracy as a teacher and I was like, oh my god, I did. And she's like, I'm taking her stand-up class at the Second City. So basically, I was, like, really depressed during the pandemic. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to take an online stand-up class mm -hmm. at the Second City online. And Aaron Tracy was my teacher. And it was something I've wanted to pursue for a while. Because I have done two max in-person, like, open mics. And, like, something went wrong the second time where I just, like completely bombed and i was like well never again and then three yeah. years later when we're in the pandemic i was like i guess i'll give it a try because it's a very independent art form and i'm stuck by myself in my closet here for a while so i took this stand-up class and basically our teacher's assignment was that every week based on the theme of stand-up that we were studying we would have to do a set and she was like you have to go to a virtual there's this group called displaced comedians mm -hmm. and you have to go to a virtual open mic and get a recording of your set and post it to the page and then we're gonna review it and me being the psychotic person that i am was like oh I don't like not having the element of control that I'm comfortable with. So rather than just going to one of the existing open mics and getting a recording of my set, I'm going to make my own open mic and then record my set from there where I'm also hosting it. And <laughs> that's basically how District Comedy got started was... That was the end of July. I think the 23rd was the first at least recorded evidence I have of a TB&J open mic show. And we've been going weekly ever since. And then we've also added on... Because then it was also like... Once I got the first show out and was like meeting really interesting people, like Winston Hodges was somebody who was coming to the open mic a lot when it had started. And Desiree Walsh, Nick Dees. A lot of people who kind of discovered it while we were just getting started, who are still regulars today. I was like, these people are cool. These people can be my friends. I wonder if I do other shows, I could trick other people into being my friends. <laughs> so it wasn't ever like an idea of like, we'd get a following or we'd make money from yeah. it. But it was like, I'm going to make a different member of my improv troupe a co-host with each show so I can keep in contact with people who I know are funny and... Uh, <laughs> Who, who I'm already friends with that I don't want to forget about me because we're all quarantined up. And then I'm also going to kind of create a show where basically people want to be my friend. That's that's the entire intention behind it, including our newer Sunday show, Jacking Off with Friends, which is where we play Jackbox games. But apparently the title insinuates something different, which I had no idea at the time of writing it. But there we are. <laughs> no no i also say that tongue-in-cheek like yeah. i knew very well what i was doing when i did it i'm all i'm relieved at that actually i was concerned about how long you've been in the pandemic and didn't no no i am a gay man i i realized the the insinuation with oh, jumping off with well you friends. fooled me this is your good acting <laughs> see you're a great actor because good voice i was like how did he not know but then i'm like well that's possible it was it's always everything's possible 
Yeah. I also, like, I feel like that has definitely inhibited my comedy styling sometimes. Because <laughs> sometimes, and, like, they say this in comedy classes, comedy acting classes, where it's, like, you really want to, like, seriously commit to a bit that you're doing. But... If you act too seriously, people won't know that you're acting, and then the joke gets lost. (laughs) Then they just think, oh, he didn't realize it was jacking off with friends. No, no, I did. Well, I thought it was funny at first, and I'm like, what? You can't be too good at acting for comedy. No, that's... Which is ironic, because everybody in acting is like, comedy is so much harder than tragedy. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's really cool. One thing I noticed on your website is that the two things are mentioned, inclusivity and accessibility. And mm-hmm. one thing, I think the inclusivity is a bit more obvious than the accessibility part, just because one thing I've heard a lot now is like, as we're coming out of the pandemic, how accessible are things going to be to people? Because that's been a big change in in the pandemic, in comedy and in performance and in shows like... Yeah. You know, people being able to get to shows that couldn't before because of whatever reason, either location or physical limitations or whatever. And so can you talk about why you chose those as like two kind of things that were very important for you to cover with yours, your show or your yeah, troupe? Yeah, absolutely. So, so like inclusivity and accessibility were both really important. So, again, at the inception of the company, it was it was more formalized later on, but it originated kind of at the same time where we were all in lockdown, but also all of the Black Lives Matter protests were going on. So it's speaking to that, and it's also speaking to the need that Zoom comedy has kind of been able to fill for a lot of voices, hilarious comedian voices that have been in different ways marginalized or the minority or silenced in some way or another that because of the online platform being set up the way that it is have found space so again because district comedy is at least um i'd love one day for us to like go into a live venue as well but for now and for the foreseeable future we are a virtual comedy club and Part of that is because when we go to a live venue, we want to be able to do it right. We want to be able to do it somewhere where the venue is ADA accessible. We want to be able to do it in a way where we're not dependent on making it a either like pay to play or like a drink minimum or and nothing against the clubs that are trying to do that. I know we all got to do what we got to do to make money, but I feel like this is really made very apparent how many barriers there are for people who are trying to get into stand-up comedy, Mm -hmm. whether it's because you have a disability and the venue has, like, stairs to the bathroom, which isn't as much a problem in the U.S., but I've heard in other countries that that type of thing is an issue, or whether it's because you are... One thing I've noticed with Zoom rooms is that there are so many more female comedians than I've seen in live rooms, Mm -hmm. and I feel like a lot of that is because a lot of the clubs in like downtowns maybe seedier parts of the city there is a real threat of danger and violence for you know people going out late at night Mm -hmm. to these comedy clubs i just heard a story the other day about live comedy clubs and it being a normal thing for 
fights to break out. And I think that there's a lot of factors for doing it online. And I know that it's not the same as live comedy. There's not the direct connection with the audience, which so many people miss from being in lockdown. But it has a lot of benefits as far as being able to do it from your home and not having to commute. Being able to save money on gas if you would have to drive a really long way because you live in a more rural area. Mm -hmm. Being able to... Yeah, we already talked about the other kind of accessibility parts of it. And then the inclusivity kind of speaks to itself in the policy statements that we have with all of our shows, but especially the TBNJ open mic, because honestly, the only reason I make such an emphasis on that show is because open mics have such a tendency to attract people who maybe are intentionally looking for the type of mic that my brand is, but also sometimes people just sign up for it without actually like reading anything. But to be more clear, that's the show where it's like, before you sign up for the show, you also agree on an electronic form that you acknowledge and consent that anything that the hosts, me and my co-hosts, consider hate speech is going to get you kicked out of the room, no questions asked. And then we Mm -hmm. have a two-strike heckler policy that gets you kicked out of the room, and we have a zero-tolerance harassment uh, policy where it's like, if you just say that somebody was harassing you, Mm -hmm. we are not playing the game where it's like, oh, are they telling the truth? Are we going to investigate this? No, you're the victim in this scenario. We're going to take your word for it. And if you tell us that someone's harassing you, we're kicking them out. No Mm -hmm. questions asked. And it feels like every time I do it, it's like a big deal and a bit of a buzzkill. And that's also why it's Mm -hmm. the structure of the show is like intro harassment policies. Tom does his set first because he's not going to make any comedian have to open for the show right after having to follow harassment policies. But that's the inclusivity part of it is we want to be a space because we're in an online forum and we have that type of control where we are giving diverse and less heard voices a space. And for that to happen, the space has to be safe. And it's gotten me in some really like icky situations as far as having to kick people out of the room, even though they'd been like, coming to the mic for a long time and been really loyal or having to kick people out of the room and then messaging me afterwards and being like, hey, I thought that this joke was okay. A lot of my friends are gay kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that is something that, again, is an important part of the mission and something that I am very committed to. It's not always easy, but something that I am happy to take on for the sake of keeping it as inclusive as it has been because that's something that I'm very proud of and something that I'm very protective of you should be because I will say that probably someone listening will be like what does it mean like harassment well I can say for sure that it means in a zoom room getting private messaged by someone and being uncomfortable about it for example I mean that's one form Mm -hmm. of it right because I've had that happen where I had to just give the guy the benefit of the doubt but he just wouldn't stop talking to me and i finally said hey i'm gonna watch the show hope you have a good night thanks for the support because he just kept going like you were really funny i really think you're great oh i like your pictures on facebook and i told my friend who was in the room too i said my facebook and like looking through my yeah like why are you on my facebook during a show like what are you doing yeah it's weird and then finally i was and he's like oh you should come to my writing group and i'm like no and it could have all been totally fine but it's just like 
I had to finally just say, hey, I'm trying to watch the show. Have a good night. And then he stopped. And if he wouldn't have stopped, I probably wouldn't have said anything. But it's just that kind of stuff where would that happen to someone else? Are you messaging all the dudes also on the show and saying that you like their photos and that you like <laughs> what them like, in your probably not. No. And that's like part of it is that like, because <laughs> I've also, again, a librarian, very thorough. <laughs> I have sent ba- out like feedback forms for people to be like, what are some things about the mic that we would change? The majority of people, I think the, it came out to 70% were like, we love that you like do the reminder about what your policies are at the top of the mic. Mm-hmm. And like some people are like, do you really have to do that? Won't people just be funny? It's like for the exact reason that you describe anybody who may not have been to the mic before, I want to make sure is aware mm-hmm. that they don't have to be in the sort of situation where you were put in, where it's like you felt maybe that like you had to kind of talk to this guy and be polite about it, even though he was like stalking your Facebook profile. Basically, mm-hmm. I want people to feel comfortable that you don't have to be the bad guy. You don't have to create drama. Send me a private message and we'll kick them out. No questions asked. It's just because that's also something that I feel like we do is like we will almost twist the narrative sometimes and put the onus on the victim mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, why didn't you just say this to them? And then they probably would have left you alone. Or why didn't you just do this or that? And it's like, yeah. A, a lot of times, and again, more so at live venues, it's like talking back and completely shutting a guy down has, and there are many, many reports of this that you can cite. I ain't going to do anybody's research for you. Not you specifically, but yeah. I imagine I'm also like always paranoid that there's going to be a bunch of haters in the comments for some reason. I'm sure everybody's enjoying this, but there are so many examples that you can see of documented times where women specifically have been approached by men, have tried to politely say no, and ended up dead. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And again, the stakes aren't that high because it's virtual, which again is a benefit. But nonetheless, it's going to definitely be enough to keep somebody from coming back. And Mm -hmm. I've heard stories from various improv clubs that I've been a part of live before the pandemic where it was like a similar situation and then it kept somebody who was extremely funny from continuing to pursue improv or comedy. And I feel like that is such a waste because the majority of my favorite comedians are all women. And to think that there are other voices that are trying to come out and trying to like dabble in comedy and then they gotta have to navigate through all of that just to kind of experiment with a new art form to them. It's like, it's it's heavy. We don't need it. <laughs> no, that takes the comedy out of it. It's great that you guys have those policies, and I think it's great that you started that. And then I guess the last thing for me is just I want to plug your podcast into the void because I was... Laughing into the laughing void. Laughing into the void. Yeah, mine's... <laughs> I wanna, no, I just wanted to promote it into the void because no one might be... <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. I misunderstood. Maybe no, one, no one's going to hear this. <laughs> No, you're right. You're it's called laughing <laughs> laughing into the void and, and we're I think plugging it into the void. Yeah. yeah. Just in case no one hears it. Um, laughing into the void squared. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think it's cool and did you guys just decide to do that just kind of out of, you know, just kind of what a lot of us did which was just keep making pod like everyone's making a podcast or <laughs> <laughs> So that was 100% and I feel like we may have talked about this a little bit when you were on that show, but like 
kind of, I feel like that episode that you were on gave you a little bit of insight, and I feel like we're kind of common in this way. I think we have, like, similar managerial brains. Mm -hmm. So the reason Laughing Into the Void came about was because, again, it was a tactic to make friends and stay in contact with friends that I already had. It wasn't just this, but, like, thinking about, say, my old improv troupe and using that as a potential pool of candidates to do stuff. And, like, thinking about who would be most likely with their availability, with their uh, ability to handle the technology element, and who I think would just be a good fit for the type of content that I intended for District Comedy to come out with, which is, again, very inclusive, like, we're all just gonna have a good time, but I also don't mind if you say penis, sort of thing. (laughs) Like... That's where it starts, and then I think about, like, okay, who are those people, what are their strengths, and then Roz specifically had tried to, with the improv troupe before, do a podcast, and not for any one specific person's fault, but it was just much harder to coordinate then. We didn't have all the tools and resources Mm -hmm. that we have now. So, knowing that, like, she hosts her own weekly, like, live stream show, knowing that she has interest in podcasts, knowing that she's interested in comedy, and knowing that she would be a good balance for my type of personality. <laughs> We're all things where I was like, we would do well with an interview show together. Because I think it... I, I'm a Virgo. <laughs> I'm a Virgo through and through. I'm very organized. I like to think. And I... I won't say I like to think. I'm trying to, like, take more space for myself. But I was recently called the most organized person in comedy. And uh, that's not an official title, but I'm, like, trying to own that brand. Uh, So we're going to go with that. But, like, so for that type of personality, you need someone to balance that out and remind you during the interview, okay, it's great that you have your structured, thought-provoking questions, but then we need an element to kind of bring it back down to earth and mm-hmm. kind of keep it in a lighter atmosphere and funny. <laughs> Even yeah. though it's not a funny podcast, we touch on some pretty heavy subjects, but it's all comedy related and it's not as much fun for the comedian if it's like just heavy stuff the f- entire time. Yeah, or just if there's no room for, well, for improv, ironically, right? That yeah, no, for it to be like, conversational. Yeah, here it's just like, oh, I have these like... <laughs> 10, 20 questions and you got to go through them. And if you say something interesting, I am not going to ask you about it. I'm just going to plow ahead, right? Which is exactly how I do my comedy. The way that I do my comedy is I have prepared a script and it sounds conversational because of the acting background, but it's not. I have memorized it verbatim down to the word, down to the article. And there is oftentimes what comes up during my act is... And I feel like it reads across my face, and it shouldn't. That's where my acting prowess fails me. But, like, I have scheduled and written exactly 15 minutes of material. Mm. And your laugh is interrupting my set. And we have an agenda, (laughs) and we have jokes to get through. (laughs) Unfortunately, that is uh, how I approach it. And I'm trying to get away from that. I hate crowd work, but I'm pushing myself, like I said, to focus on my weaknesses for that kind of issue to be resolved. But yeah, if if it weren't for Roz, it would be a a very different show, and I think it is much better for her being on it. (laughs) And uh, yeah, she she was the inspiration behind it. Oh, nice. All right, cool. So I have a set of questions I ask every guest, but before I do that, um, I'm going to ask... Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. The fun five. 
But before that, um, I'm going to ask, do you have any advice or mantra that you just generally like to share or that comes up for you that you want to share with the More Than Work audience? Yeah, it's going to be my book. It's coming out late fall. No, I just feel like there are so many good pieces of, of advice. But off the top of my head, one that has really resonated with me is just to be to be kinder to yourself. Artists really have a tendency more than most people to put a lot of pressure on themselves to be exceptional at their craft, which because of the type of market we're in is constituted. It is very competitive. And unfortunately, like jobs for artists are a very finite resource. But that being said, you gain nothing from being hard on yourself when evaluating your craft. It gently reflecting is going to be 10 times more beneficial if the alternative is going to be so harsh that you don't go back mm-hmm. to the craft. Whatever sort of reflection you can do while also like clocking your hours and at least for me this is how I have to write. I have to like set a time every day and like mm-hmm. write for a certain amount of time and work through it like a mule and if you're if you're that kind of person like being gentle with yourself about it if you like miss a day it doesn't mean that now you're like super far behind or like you're screwed for life like (laughs) it's fine you're still funny you were probably going to be funny if you don't write at a consistent time every day just like being super critical oh god it's sometimes it can be helpful but it can be such a creativity stifler if it's not like gentle so be be gentle to yourselves be gentle (laughs) that's my advice be gentle (laughs) it sounds yell it at you (laughs) (laughs) all right cool no that's that is true so my fun five so what is the oldest t-shirt that you have and still wear oh this is a loaded question because I gained weight in quarantine. So a lot of them, I wear a lot of my boyfriend's clothes now. I don't, I don't <laughs> know how many of my own I have left. So it is, no, it is a, it's like a, this counts. It's like a three quarter sleeve t-shirt, but it's like a baseball t-shirt, but it has the free range improv logo on it. And hmm. I think it was like our second or third year. We do like these awesome anniversary parties. And that's what it, that's, that's what it's from. We nice. had shirts and we saw a game. Ah, cool. All right. And if every day was really Groundhog's Day, like a lot of people are saying because of the pandemic and we're just kind of stuck in our houses a lot of the time, what song would you have your alarm set to play every morning? Oof. 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 I mean, okay, I'll give you two answers. Right now, it would probably be that song from The Greatest Showman, Never Enough. Mm. just because that's been on my TikTok feed and it's in my head all the time and I fucking love it. But also, like, uh, all time, like, always on repeat in my head would probably be Digital Witnesses by St. Vincent. Okay, cool. All right, well, those will end up on the the playlist, the Spotify playlist. (laughs) That's fun. (laughs) Yeah. That's going to be very, like, uh, different genres. (laughs) It's got a bunch of, it's it's different. That's a different playlist for sure at this point. (laughs) Coffee or tea or neither? Coffee. That was an easy answer. Yeah. Yeah. I I have really high blood pressure. My doctor's (laughs) concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was told to cut down on coffee, and I was like, all right, sure. You know? As soon as the world cuts down on being fucking (laughs) a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And (laughs) so can you think of, like, the last time you laughed so hard you cried or just couldn't stop or maybe something that just kind of gets you to do that? 
so yesterday, during the earlier part of the festival, Katie Zane did a set, and it it, it killed me. It killed me. I was I was laughing. I was crying. It was just like they have such a unique perspective, and like, I just love their sense of humor. Like it, it it got me. It killed me. I I wish I could think of like the specific joke that like killed me about it. But in general, also like my genre of humor that will get me cracking up and laughing every single time consistently is like anything that's going to be like really absurdist, maybe like in the sci-fi realm of what did the chicken cross the road because it was the only road she'd ever known kind of thing. <laughs> like that is, that is my shit. Nice. Well, that's cool. And that's good for a shout out to another comedian. And the last one, who inspires you right now? Tiffany Hadish. Hmm. Partly because I know she's on this app. Are you listening right now? I know. Uh, I know. That'd be cool. You're my inspiration. No, I feel like I'm very, like... It's weird, because I haven't been thinking about my comedy that much, because I've been, like, thinking of myself as a producer. But when I think of who inspires me, probably my fiancé. I think that he's awesome, and he also has a better sense of humor than I do. I bounce a lot of my jokes off of him before they, like, make it into my set, and then just, like, for general life things, he's an inspiration. He's just, he's an incredible human being. I'm so lucky. (laughs) Awesome, and congrats on the engagement in 2020, by the way. That's great. Thanks! It was, it was a crazy year! And I have a bit about this, but I feel bad. It was such a good year for me. (laughs) <laughs> it was such a bad year for other people, but that was that was the best thing out of that year. I oh god, I get to spend the rest of my life with this guy. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's good. So this episode, just you know, we're recording it April second because you already referred to your April first show. It'll probably come out in a couple weeks but if people want to know more about you or find you, what where should they go and what do you want them to look for? Visit district comedycom because we have. A bunch of different platforms. We got the Facebook page. We have the Instagram. That we have the whatever. But the home base where you can find all the other stuff is district-comedy.com. Awesome. Well, thanks, Tom. It was a lot of fun chatting with you. I really appreciate you doing the show. Uh, I really appreciate you asking me. I'm so glad that we were able to connect. Yeah. Cool. Yay! Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about the guest in the show notes and at RobbieHasSaid.com. Joe Mafia created the music just for this podcast. Find him on Spotify. That's Joe, M-A-F-F-I-A. And Rob Metke is responsible for our visual design. You can find him online by searching for Rob, M-E-T-K-E. Thanks, Rob. Let me know who you'd like to hear from or about your own experiences defining yourself outside of work. Follow at More Than Work Pod or send a message on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Or visit our website, morethanworkpod.com. Give us a follow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review if you like. Thanks for listening to More Than Work. While being kind to others, don't forget to be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm.